The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Across the Age Spectrum. Expert insights on emerging uses of targeted therapy for the treatment of uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma with Dr. Ian Pavard. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DWM 860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello, my name's Ian Pavard. I'm Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the University of Oxford in the UK, and I'm delighted to join you today to talk about our insights on the emerging uses of targeted therapy for the treatment of uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma. Now, the type 2 inflammatory pathway uh, is uh, important, and I'm going to go through it in detail. Uh, it plays a key role in a number of common conditions, often associated with allergy or atopy, including asthma, atopic dermatitis, and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, and finally, eosinophilic esophagitis. And it's important because we have new treatment options uh, that powerfully inhibit this process and result in clinical benefits. Now, one key feature of the uh, type 2 inflammatory response in the airway is it's very detectable using simple biomarkers. And these biomarkers tell you uh, slightly different information. So the blood eosinophil count is raised primarily as a result of increased circulating IL-5. And it's a beautiful biomarker of IL-5 activity, uh, systemically particularly. Exhaled nitric oxide is increased as a result of IL-13-induced nitric oxide synthase in the airway epithelium. So here we have a very simple, non-invasive marker that tells us a lot about IL-13 activity in the lungs. And serum IgE is increased as a result of the effects of IL-4 and IL-13 um, uh, causing B-cell isotype switching. And so that can also be a biomarker indicating uh, type 2 inflammation, although interestingly is somewhat um, less closely, closely linked to key outcomes compared to pheno and uh, blood eosinophils. So let's um, turn now to consider what um, the asthma guidelines uh, across the US, the UK and Europe are saying about type 2 inflammation, uh, the importance of measuring it and uh, opportunities we have for inhibiting the process. And this is a, an area of great current change. So these guidelines are being updated frequently and quickly um, go out of date. So if we uh, first consider the ERS-ATS, Severe Asthma Ta Task Force recommendations from 2020. Uh, they make a, a number of very uncontentious uh, and very reasonable recommendations. So anti-IL-5 should be considered as an add-on therapy for adults with uncontrolled asthma, eosinophilic phenotype, and for uh, severe corticosteroid-dependent asthma. And by uncontrolled asthma, I think we would be particularly looking for patients who have an exacerbation problem. They say that a cut point of 150 cells per microliter is a reasonable cut point, and a history of prior exacerbations, again, a reasonable criteria. 
Um, for omalizumab, which is an older biologic, they recommend a higher blood eosinophil cut point based on Nick Hanania's um, uh, important 2013 paper in the Blue Journal, the extra study. But also a pheno of above 19.5 is predictive of efficacy of anti-IgE. Um, uh, for children, adolescents and adults with severe asthma who are uncontrolled, uh, and I would have said, and have airflow limitation, um, then the addition of a long-acting anti-muscarinic is recommended. And I think that's uh, very sensible. Um, trial of macrolides might be considered in adult uh, asthma subjects who have recurrent exacerbations, and particularly those that don't have raised type 2 biomarkers. Um, uh, and they recommend against the use in younger patients. Dupilumab uh, is recommended as an add-on add therapy for adult patients with severe eosinophilic asthma and for those with severe corticosteroid-dependent asthma. And in this situation, it's recommended regardless of eosinophil levels. And this is a treatment that would be particularly likely to be effective in patients with comorbid type 2 inflammatory conditions. So let's turn now to the GINA um, uh, treatment uh, algorithm, the, the, the so-called stepwise algorithm, which has been changed in the latest iteration of the GINA guidelines to reflect the use of rapid onset beta agonist in combination with uh, inhaled steroids as a alternative and often very effective rescue strategy. But I want you to look at step five. Um, these are patients that are uncontrolled despite maximum inhaled therapy. And Gina says um, that these patients should be referred for a phenotype assessment. In other words, you know, one of the things we want to know is do they have type 2 airway inflammation? And these are the sorts of patients where one would be considering biological treatment with an anti-IL-5 or an anti-IgE or an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha, in other words, dupilumab. And most of these patients would be on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids with a long-acting beta agonist and often many other treatments uh, as well. What Gina does discourage is the regular use of oral corticosteroids. And, and I believe that this will be a, a practice that becomes um, obsolete as we move into the biologic era for severe asthma. So that's what the guidelines say. Let's uh, take a closer look at the biologic options that we have to treat uh, type 2 airway inflammation in patients with moderate to severe asthma. So here they are uh, in summary. Um, and dupilumab, which targets IL-4 and IL-13 by blocking the shared receptor component IL-4 receptor alpha. Omalizumab, which binds to IgE. Benrolizumab, which binds to the IL-5 receptor alpha and prevents IL-5 um, docking on that receptor. And both mepolizumab and reslizumab, which uh, block, which bind to IL-5 and prevent it interacting with this receptor that way. These are all approved treatments in many countries around the world, in fact most countries around the world, and are being used widely to treat patients with moderate to severe asthma. We have um, one other uh, biologic, um, tezepilumab, which blocks TSLP, which uh, has 
gone through phase three clinical trials and is waiting approval in, uh, in uh, uh, various parts of the world um, and we'll briefly discuss. Um, so we'll move now to some recent insights and I've looked particularly at data that was presented at the ERS at the virtual meeting uh, this year and uh, some publications that have appeared this year and that were presented at the American Thoracic Society. So um, I, my goal really is to, is to look at new data uh, rather than go, old, go through old phase three trials. And we'll look in adults and also pediatric patients with uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma. So starting with dupilumab, um, this is recommended as an in initial dose of 400 milligrams subcutaneously followed by I, two mil 200 milligrams every two weeks or in oral steroid dependent patients 600 milligrams as a stat dose followed by 300 milligrams every other week. Uh, it's approved for patients over the age of 12 with moderate to severe asthma and an eosinophilic phenotype or patients with oral steroid dependent asthma. Um, in the last few years we've seen a succession of subgroup post-hoc analyses from the Quest study. This was a study that included 1902 patients so it was an enormous phase three study um, and there was great opportunity to drill down and try and work out who was responding well to patients and the graphs at the top left, I think, show very clearly that those with raised biomarkers, so pheno above 25, blood EOs above 150, have a very good response to treatment. Um, and if they're not treated, they have you know, a high risk of exacerbation. So these biomarkers are telling you about risk and likely treatment response. Patients with nasal polyps do better with treatment than those without. Um, the presence of nasal polyps is a very good marker of more severe type 2 airway inflammation. Interestingly, the more reversible the patient is, the less well they do with um, dupilumab and the lower the risk they have of exacerbations. And remember, type 2 airway inflammation is linked to non-bronchodilator responsive airflow limitation. So that makes sense. Um, the dose of inhaled steroids is not a relevant factor, uh, nor is the presence of allergy. So, yeah, we're, we're beginning to get a very clear understanding of who does well with treatment and who doesn't. Yeah, and with biologic treatments, that's enormously important. So we can go to payers and say, look, we have you know, a fairly good idea that this patient's going to have a good response to treatment. And that's been a huge boon for us as we negotiate with um, uh, payers. Uh, Dupilumab has been uh, around for some time um, and we now have data from long-term extension studies. The Traverse study which uh, was presented at the ATS and has been presented at a number of conferences recently. In a nutshell um, patients continue to do well on Dupilumab um, during the extension study between weeks 48 and 96 and between week, weeks 0 and 48 after they finished the parent study, in this case the Quest study. And you can see that in type 2 high patients from the Quest study, 
The benefits of treatment seem, if anything, to accumulate with time, which I find interesting. Particularly as if you look at the biomarkers, blood eosinophils and uh, IgE, show that these biomarkers continue to gradually reduce um, on long-term treatment. And in fact, uh, you know, in the second and even the third year of treatment, there are continued reductions in the biomarkers, suggesting that there is a long-term um, anti-inflammatory uh, effect of blocking IL-4 and IL-30. And I think this probably reflects reduced numbers of type 2 cells in the airway as a result of blockade of IL-4. That's my view. But I think it's interesting. Um, we've seen uh, data presented on the efficacy of dupilumab in children aged 6 to 12 with type 2 high asthma and the findings are very similar to those um, that are seen in adults with a big reduction in exacerbation, irrespective of whether there's allergy or not. So that's not a relevant uh, characteristic. So 62% in allergic asthma and 51% in non-allergic asthma reduction in exacerbations. Um, there are improvements in asthma control assessed by the ACQ7 score on the left and the PAQLQ, the Pediatric Asthma Quality of Life Questionnaire, on the right. Um, and again, these are very similar to what, what's been seen in adults, so no great surprises uh, in uh, the pediatric population. Moving now to omelizumab, well, the range of benefits with omelizumab are more limited, so there's no consistent placebo-controlled trial evidence showing an improvement in lung function or symptoms, but it undoubtedly reduces exacerbations, uh, particularly during high-risk periods, uh, such as the back-to-school asthma attack sort of epidemic we always see. Um, and it's allowed patients to lower the dose of inhaled steroids, but the data on oral steroid-sparing effects of omelizumab are weak, uh, and there are a number of other limitations of this biologic, including um, its uh, weight-based dosing, um, and dosing has to be adjusted according to serum IL IgE, which is a biomarker that is not, in fact, related to the efficacy of treatment at all. Um, so, although it's an effective treatment, I think we've done a poor job in identifying in whom it's effective. My opinion is that this is a type 2 high biologic, just as the others are, uh, with perhaps a particular role in younger patients with allergen-driven uh, moderate to severe asthma. So children, uh, this was an interesting abstract presented at the ERS, which looked at withdrawal of omelizumab. And this is something that, 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 that patients, particularly younger patients, are keen to do when they've had a period of very good asthma control. And of course, asthma often gets better in young children, particularly young boys, as they go through adolescence. Um, so this study looked at um, discontinuing treatment, um, that treatment had been uh, for at least two years in 14 children. Uh, you know, they were adolescents. Um, and um, all showed you know, good sustained symptom control um, and only one child had exacerbations requiring an increase in maintenance therapy. So you know, even out to 12 months after stopping omelizumab, many of these young patients remain well. 
So I think particularly in adolescents and younger patients who've been well controlled for a period, uh, it's worth thinking about withdrawing treatment because there's a lot going on at this age in teenagers, including lung growth, and asthma is known to improve during this time. Uh, turning to mepolizumab, anti-IL-5, um, this uh, improves lung function, asthma control, quality of life, and yeah, it does have a big effect on the St. George's quality of life questionnaire, uh, which incorporates measures such as activity and work productivity. It reduces exacerbations, including severe exacerbations, it's oral steroid sparing, and despite allowing patients to come off oral steroids, they have overall better asthma control. Um, so uh, and these effects of mepolizumab, I think, are very reflective of the effects of the anti-IL-5 biologics in general. Um, what, what we've heard in, uh, in recent meetings is uh, the results of a real-world study. So this is the Reality A, a big real-world, international real-world study. Uh, which assessed the impact of treatment in 368 patients around the world and showed findings that I think are very consistent with the phase three trial data. So 69% reduction in exacerbations from a very high level, 4.6, and a 50% reduction in oral corticosteroids in patients that were oral steroid dependent. So very similar findings to the trials. Um, uh, suggesting robust efficacy in different healthcare settings. Benralizumab, very similar effects to mepolizumab. I think it's very difficult to tell them apart. It's administered every eight weeks after the first three doses, which might be an advantage for some patients. The phase three program focused on outcomes in patients with higher blood eosinophil counts, above 300. So they're rather difficult to compare with the phase three programs with dupilumab and mepolizumab. They've all had slightly different criteria. And again, this is a, a very safe drug. It's more effective at inhibiting eosinophils, so it gets them down to a lower level and does so more quickly than mepolizumab. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any obvious clinical benefits of this greater biological effect. Let's turn now to uh, new data that was presented at the ERS uh, on uh, clinical characteristics that identify super responders to benralizumab. This is the ANDI trial. Um, and predictably, the blood eosinophil count emerged as a predictive variable for super responders. Um, and depending on what criteria was used to define a response, you can see that benralizumab um, was differentially effective, so particularly effective at elimination of exacerbations and improving the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, but less effective at uh, reducing symptoms or improving lung function. Um, and this, I think, is reflective of uh, the IL-5 class of biologics. They have a very big effect on exacerbations, the lesser effect on lung function and symptoms. And it may be that a broader inhibition of the type 2 pathway with, for example, dupilumab achieves a broader range of beneficial effects. And that would be a, a, an interesting um, uh, thing to investigate. So if we turn now to tezapilumab, 
This is a biologic that blocks TSLP, one of those very proximal alarmins, and there thus might be expected to take out a large component of the type 2 immune response by acting very proximally. Navigator was a phase 3 trial involving over a thousand patients with moderate to severe asthma who had two or more exacerbations in the year before randomization, and they were randomized to uh, a year's treatment with tezepilumab given every four weeks uh, or placebo. And the findings are summarized in the table and they're very consistent with uh, all of the biologic studies that, that, um, that have been done with anti-IL-5 and with dupilumab. So just over a halving of exacerbation rates and no unfamiliar or unexpected adverse events. So findings that are consistent, I think, with the, the phase 2b study um, and uh, no unexpected safety signals that emerged. We heard at the ERS from Elliot Israel um, the findings in the subgroup of participants who were adolescents. Um, and there were a small group, 41 in each treatment group of the uh, over 1,000 patients. So this data is somewhat preliminary. But uh, the findings in the adolescent group were not dissimilar to the findings in the wider adult group uh, with reduced exacerbations and uh, improvements in pre-bronchilator FEV1 um, seen at week 52. Now, clearly, uh, it would be interesting to see these data broken down by type 2 biomarkers. Um, and I suspect they would look very similar to, to the adult data of the larger population. So um, COVID, of course, is uh, very high on everyone's agenda, and there have been an enormous an amount of papers on COVID, um, particularly uh, COVID and severe asthma and the use of biologics. Uh, here are two abstracts that I thought were interesting and very reassuring, uh, and they certainly support my clinical impression. Firstly, it was very unusual for any of our patients with severe asthma to get COVID-19. They were very careful with shielding, I think. Um, but secondly, when they did get it, they didn't seem to be at higher risk of developing uh, severe disease uh, when considering um, comorbid factors that may be relevant, such as age and obesity. Uh, and uh, yeah, th these two abstracts, I think, support that, um, really showed that um, three patients with severe asthma on biologics who developed uh, COVID infection all had mild, mild disease. Um, and uh, the patients who switched from hospital treatment, which was no longer valid or, or difficult to deliver, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so patients that switched from in-hospital administration to at-home self-administration in many cases seem to do just as well. Um, and this practice of bringing patients up to hospital to have their biologic has disappeared, I think, more quickly than we expected it to. And the vast majority of patients in the UK now are self-administering biologics at home and are doing a great job. So I'm going to finish with uh, you know, my pet topic, um, biomarkers, because I think there's been some very interesting data in this area. 
course, biomarkers have been measured systematically in all the big clinical trials of biologics. So we've got a huge amount of data on the relationship between biomarkers and key clinical outcomes. And we're going to have a look at um, some post hoc analyses of these data. Um, and this is all uh, 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 data that's been published very recently. So um, here I've uh, shown data from mild asthma on the left. This is uh, patients who participated in the novel START study, a study investigating treatment options in very mild episodic uh, asthma, so um, few symptoms, normal lung function. Um, and uh, you see the data stratified by the baseline blood eosinophil count. And I want you to focus on the patients treated with as-needed salbutamol only. So they're the blue group. And you can see this very clear relationship between biomarker and risk of exacerbation, which is not seen at all in patients who were randomized to steroid treatment. So the biomarker is telling you about a risk of an adverse outcome that can be reduced with treatment, which is a sort of risk we want to be identifying, risk that we can do something about. Um, the same thing has been shown in COPD. You see Mona Baffadel's lovely um, analysis of formoterol versus budesonide formoterol, showing that the benefits are really confined to patients with higher blood eosinophil counts. And in moderate to severe asthma, it's become clear that both pheno and blood eosinophils independently and additively identify, one, the risk of exacerbations, and two, the likelihood of a response to biologics. So you can see the group that have high pheno and high blood EOs, so the top right um, figure and the top right of the top right figure, they're the ones that are at particularly high risk of exacerbations, but they're the ones that benefit most from treatment, um, be it dupilumab or mepolizumab. Uh, so these biomarkers that look like, yeah, in many ways, the airway equivalent of cholesterol and blood pressure in a cardiovascular sense. So um, and yeah, in my view, routine assessment of these biomarkers in clinical practice is absolutely essential. Um, a, a very interesting paper that was presented at the um, uh, American Thoracic Society meeting and has recently been published in Thorax really took this concept to the next level by developing a risk score, the Oracle, the Oxford Risk of Asthma Attack Scale. And each of these small squares has a number in it, which is the predicted asthma attack rate in the next year if you do nothing. So if you make no changes to treatment. Um, and the data is stratified by GINA treatment step, by whether the patients had an asthma attack, in the last year, and whether they have additional clinical risk factors such as high symptom scores or poor lung function. And these are all acknowledged to be linked to the risk of asthma attack. And so if you look in one of the rectangles in one group of patients, you see very consistently that the patients that have a high pheno and a high blood eosinophils have about a four, three to four fold increased risk of an asthma attack compared to the equivalent patient, so they have the same other risk factors, but they have low biomarkers. And this relative risk of asthma attacks 
is the same whether you have mild asthma or severe asthma. So you have this three to fourfold increase in risk. But clearly, you start from a much lower baseline risk if you have mild asthma compared to more severe asthma. And this scale could be a terrific way of uh, communicating with patients and selling them the concept that there is more to asthma care than improving symptoms and lung function. We also have to assess whether they have this key treatable trait, type 2 airway inflammation, because it is linked particularly to the risk of asthma attacks. And if we can remove it with treatment, and it's straightforward to do that, and it's very safe to do that, we can substantially reduce that risk. Um, so I'm going to take this a stage further um, and focus particularly on this additive risk that blood eosinophils and pheno provide. And this suggests that they may be identifying different aspects of type 2 inflammation and that that, um, that might be important. It might allow us to further stratify type 2 high asthma. Um, and this concept was taken um, to the next level uh, by the same author. Uh, and again, this paper's been presented at recent uh, international meetings and has just been published in the Blue Journal. And it looked at a reasonably large population of patients who had uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma despite taking a, a good dose of inhaled steroids, and we were absolutely sure they were taking them. So they, they had confirmed treatment adherence through various means. And it looked at the relationship between pheno and blood eosinophils and a range of measures of type 2 inflammation in the circulation and in the airway compartment, so in induced sputum. And to cut a long story short, pheno correlates quite closely with all of the airway measurements, be it type 2 cytokines, chemokines, and alarmins. There was a reasonable correlation between pheno and these measures. But blood eosinophils didn't correlate with any of them. The only thing blood eosinophils correlated with was serum IL-5. Now, this data suggests that these two biomarkers identify different components and even compartments of type 2 inflammation. And this is depicted in the figure shown here as magnets and bonds. So pheno reflects the strength of the magnet that is pulling eosinophils towards the airway epithelium, the chemotactic pull. Whereas the bomb reflects these toxic cells, these eosinophils, which are circulating and could be recruited into the airway towards the airway epithelium. Uh, so when you have a scenario where you have both a strong magnet and a very big bomb, uh, you're in trouble. You're at high risk of having an asthma attack. It only requires a minor trigger to destabilize the system and trigger an episode of non-bronchodilator responsive airflow limitation, probably due to mucus plugging. If you can remove one of those, either the bomb uh, uh, or the magnet, your risks are really substantially lower, as you saw from Oracle. Um, and perhaps um, anti-IL-5 biologics work particularly on exacerbations because they turn off the reservoir of circulating bombs. So whatever's pulling these cells into the airway, if there are none circulating, nothing bad will happen. Whereas other biologics, and dupilumab, for example, may be not only 
preventing eosinophils getting out of the vascular compartment, so hitting that systemic compartment, but also switching off the magnet that's pulling them towards the airway epithelium. And this is a really interesting concept, I think, and suggests that we could use these two biomarkers to sort of substratify type 2 asthma and, and make better treatment choices and better predictions. So thank you. I, I will finish there. Um, I hope you've enjoyed hearing about um, recent progress in this very exciting field. It's very clear that we're going through a, a period of unprecedented progress in severe asthma. We're, we're achieving outcomes that we never dreamed of achieving uh, 10 years ago or more. It's very exciting to be involved in the care of patients with severe asthma. Uh, and the key to this has been um, better understanding of the heterogeneity of severe asthma, and particularly pulling out type 2 airway inflammation as a key treatable trait, which can be measured very easily, um, and which drives non-bronchodilator responsive airflow limitation and particularly exacerbations of airways disease. And this is a very treatable trait um, and we have a range of treatments and uh, highly specific effective biologics that inhibit type 2 inflammation and offer exciting new opportunities for patients with this, this form of asthma. So thank you very much. Um, I hope we get the opportunity to meet at future uh, international meetings. Um, it, it, it's, uh, and I'm sure they will be as exciting as the ones we've missed <laughs> or only seen virtually over the last year or so. Um, and uh, many thanks for listening, and uh, I hope you stay safe. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DWM860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi Genzyme.